HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. Hi, I'm Kathy Array, the host of Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. This summer, I'm taking a little break and having co-host Talia Ralph and Brianna Kurtz host several episodes. I'll see you back in the fall. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, hello. You're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Talia Ralph. We're thrilled to be here broadcasting live from Roberto's in Bushwick, bringing you guys all the best in words about food and maybe even some food about words. Um, but before we get to chatting with our amazing guest today, one Mr. Francis Lamb, I'd like to take a minute to make a quick plug for the station you're listening to right now. Heritage Radio Network is a one-of-a-kind media outfit, and we're in the midst of our summer membership drive. We'd love to have you join our community. All of us here at Heritage wake up in the morning and stay up late at night because we love helping our listeners get more deeply informed about what we all eat, um, whether it's about the best in food literature like we do here on Eat Your Words, food politics and crucial policy, policy shifts in issues like school food or animal rights, the intricacies of the kitchen or restaurant or anything else you can think of. Um, I know I rely on Heritage Radio Network all the time um, in the work I do both as a reporter and a grad student, and I'm so proud to be a part of Heritage every time I hear feedback from listeners like you guys about how much they love our content. Um, so it really would mean the world to us if you could take a minute and become a member or renew your membership today. Um, all you got to do is go to www.heritageradionetwork.com, hit the donate tab. We take any and all amounts, though for just $10 a month, you'll get one of our awesome tote bags. Um, and no matter what you give, your brain, your stomach, and your hosts and reporters will thank you, myself included. Um, so let's get right into today's show. You might know our guest from his prominent position at the critics' table of Top Chef Masters, but we haven't asked Francis Lamb here to talk cooking competitions, at least not today. We're here to talk about Southern food, specifically writing about Southern food. Lamb is the editor of the seventh edition of Cornbread Nation, an anthology of the best Southern food writing 
writing in recent years. He's also um, the editor-at-large at Clarkson Potter and the former features editor of Guilt Taste. Um, he's written and edited for Gourmet Magazine, May It Rest in Peace, um, and his work at both has been honored with several IACP and James Beard Award foundations. Um, He's also a New Jersey native who transplanted to the South via Mississippi, so we'll have lots to talk about in just a minute. Francis, thank you so much for being here. We'll stop bragging about you and get right down to the meat and grits of it. Well, thank you for having me. And if you want to just keep talking about me, like, you know, we can just keep the clock running and it's like, oh, half hour's over. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not the usual format of the show, but, uh, you know, maybe next time we'll, we'll do it that way. <laughs> um, first things first, this might be a really uh, simple question, but full disclosure, I'm a Canadian. So my knowledge of the South was uh, pretty limited until just a few years ago. Um, but I'm wondering how you would define the southern United States. We'll refer to it as the South for here on out, because I always thought it was, you know, there was a straight line across the U.S. like the equator that was north and south. But really, it's not not exactly that simple. It's more the southeast and some things make it in and some don't. So um, for the purposes of our leaders, how did you sort of how did you map the south um, in thinking about this book? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're a Canadian, then like New Jersey is still kind of the South. Then, <laughs> right. right? And, and it's funny because actually, it's funny you say that because I start my intro to the anthology <clears throat> with this really kind of awful uh, thought that I used to have. Um, I, so I used to live in Michigan. I went to college in Michigan, and I used to think when I was there that, man, like every time you get more than like 30 miles outside of a major city you're in the south and like Michigan is like kind of like this northernmost southern state um, but I think that really just kind of that, that just kind of shows the level but, well a couple things one the level of ignorance I had um, but the other is that there is actually this larger sense of the south isn't really necessarily about the southern states or, you know, states south of a particular line or, you know, the states that fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. But there is this, I think, real idea of the South is kind of everywhere, and the South is such an integral part of American culture. And the idea of what it means to be Southern is, in a lot of ways, the idea of what a lot of people think of as being American, rightly or wrongly. I mean, I remember... <clears throat> excuse me, during the um, 2012 presidential election when Sarah Palin made her infamous comment about, you know, she was in, you know, rural Virginia and looking around, she said, now these are the real Americans. Mm. And I found that so incredibly offensive as someone who takes great pride in being an American who is from the North and who's, you know, the, ch the child of immigrants, and I know she wasn't talking about me, right? So I thought that was incredibly offensive, but at the same time, you have to recognize that, yeah, there are people out there who think, quote-unquote, real American is rural America, and rural America is, or rather the South, is so often equated with being rural America. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess there's there's no really easy way to answer your question. That's an, a big part of what the book is kind of about. Right. Yeah, I think you make a great point um, about the South sort of being woven through the American identity. I definitely want to get into that um, in a little bit. But, you know, for myself, reading through the book, um, some of the stories, like, um, 
the perfect chef, which is, you know, takes place sort of in Virginia around DC, or, you know, there are stories from Miami, Florida, which I also, you know, usually would exclude from my, um, Mm -hmm. maybe skewed vision of the South, um, was the part of your intention in the book expanding people's notions of, of what it means to be Southern or really where the South exists geographically speaking. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and thank you for seeing that. I mean, in a very sort of intentional way, I still wanted to start the book with two stories from Miami, which, I mean, there's also another joke, right? In Florida, the further south you go, the further north you go. <laughs> um, and I think it's because people think of Miami as being really a Caribbean city um, in a lot of ways, or, or more to put sort of a find a point on it. People think of Miami as, quote unquote, almost a northern city because it's, you know, made up of, you know, Spanish speaking people largely, or, you know, lots of transplanted northern Jewish people. And, you know, that, oh, well, that can't really be southern then because it's not, right? Mm-hmm. But no, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, it's as south in the United States as you can possibly get. So on, on some level, the South does own it, and the South has to own it, and and I think we have to own up to the fact that it is part of a Southern state, um, and I think that really just sort of highlights um, a lot of things. And the South is not necessarily what we always think of it as, and it also highlights that the South is a lot more culturally, ethnically, and racially diverse than a lot of people necessarily think of it as, um, both in the North and in the South. Right, and, and in a way sort of expanding our idea of what the South is sort of tracks or, or interestingly, you know, should track with our idea of what America is, right? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of people are still working on getting comfortable with that, but um, I think sure. the, the same thing with the South where some people have this very um, narrow vision. But I sort of, you know, I have to, I have to get to, to your New Jersey origins, <laughs> because a big theme across this edition of Cornbread Nation, um, I found anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, sort of has to do with these preconceived notions outsiders have about the South and how you sort of negotiate the South as an outsider, you know, moving within it. Um, and I'm wondering as someone who, you know, grew up in the North, in New Jersey, not too far from New York, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your own preconceived preconceptions of the South and and how those changed as you um, moved through it. Sure. So so we're just talking about me and my my personal experience, you mean, not not necessarily in the book. For for now, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, You know, I, like I said before, I, I, you know, I used to think of, um, you know, I had all the same kind of stereotypical ideas of of what the South was um, growing up in New Jersey. And that you know many other people do you know i had this idea that it was you know full of backwards people and full of people who you know probably wouldn't like someone like me and my family's chinese you know probably would take a look at me and not really want me around you know that whole thing and you know i yeah i'd visited a few places here and there but my but the sort of really fundamental experience i had in my life was um, going down to the Gulf Coast of Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, I was already a writer, but um, I had a day job. My day job was working with nonprofit organizations as a grant writer and whatever, doing like organizational development and stuff that will you know, make you fall asleep just even hearing about it. Um, but I started working with this organization in Biloxi, Mississippi, 
that was trying to rebuild its neighborhood after the storm. And, and the neighborhood had been, I mean, demolished. I got there six months after Katrina, and you could have convinced me it happened yesterday. Um, just the level of destruction was so intense and so visible, even half a year after. I mean, to be sure, they had, like, they had you know, cleaned up a lot, but yeah, it was just like, you just can't imagine what it looks like when an entire city almost gets wiped off, you know, by a, by, you know, a 30-foot wave. And what I found there was this really, this small and, and you know, intimate, but this really incredibly um, lovely community of people who, I'll put it to you this way, one of the first people I met was this woman named Miss Lucille, and she worked at this, at this, um, this recovery center as well. And when I, whenever I walked down the street with her to go get lunch or whatever, people would say, hey, Miss Lucille, how's it going? And she would speak to every single, literally every person, every person we saw on the street. And they all knew her because their grandparents all knew each other because they grew up in the same street. Right? And for someone who grew up in, you know, just kind of like a modern suburban environment where, like, maybe you knew some of your neighbors, but then you got in your car and you drove somewhere, you know, living that kind of American lifestyle, um, I thought this sense of community was so strong and so unique to this place. And maybe you could call it a particularly Southern but I think in a bigger way, it was just about opening my open my realization to the opening myself to the realization that like every place has its life, right? And every place deserves to be seen on its own terms. Um, and you know, this was this was not that long ago. I mean, this was well almost ten years ago. But you know, I had sort of intellectually come to realize that yeah, you know, you can't just like broad, you know, just paint these broad stereotypes of people and be comfortable with them, uh, uh, you know, many, many years before that. But, you know, this was one of those moments for you, like, kind of look back to, man, if you just told me who I thought I would meet going to Biloxi, Mississippi, when I was, you know, if I was 16, and I'd be, like, so embarrassed by what that 16-year-old version of me would have said, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that happened, too, was, you know, Miss Lucille's black, and she lived side by side and worked so side by side with white people. And I remember meeting a gentleman named Mr. Leroy, who was um, a, a Cajun shrimper, ex-shrimper. And he, on one level, was talking to me really frankly about how he just didn't like it when Vietnamese people started becoming shrimpers in that area. And he felt like they were unfair in the way they competed with him. He felt like, you know, the way they shrimped was really, you know, was, was, wasn't, you know, was, was wrong. And, and he was really pissed and he was really pissed that this community of shrimpers was growing and they had kind of taken over what his community had known. Meanwhile, like I said, I'm Chinese. He saw me and never for a second, it didn't, never for a second would have occurred to me that he had any kind of preconceived notion about who I would be. And he welcomed me into what was functionally his home and welcomed me to a crawfish boil, invited me in, and, you know, just immediately took me in and then told me his story and showed such an incredible trust in me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's those kinds of experiences that even though intellectually, like I said, like many years before, I'd kind of 
said to myself, no, like people are just people everywhere around, everywhere around the world, right? And people always have an opportunity to be amazing, and they always have an opportunity to be less than amazing. And you just kind of have to let them be who they're going to be. Um, but to be in those situations and to have those people choose to be wonderful and choose to be welcoming was you know it just it just really struck me and it really made me feel that when i had the opportunity to edit this book that i want to show so many different perspectives of what it meant to be southern um because there are so many that exist Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring up the crawfish boil because I, I recently went to New Orleans um, for the first time and and looked into the crawfish boil as part of my research before I went down there. And that that sort of inviting in, you know, of the outsider to some, you know, to a, a real um, community oriented meal, something that yeah, requires sure. like specific knowledge of, you know, what do you do with these things if you've never eaten them before or seen someone eat them they're sort of daunting and um i think that's it's a really sort of nice summation of that feeling of welcome that yeah maybe and probably is not unique to the south um i grew up in in a northern community that was pretty similar in some ways mm-hmm. but um just that that welcoming in um especially through food i think definitely runs through the book um we're actually going to take a quick break, but um, don't go anywhere. We're talking with Francis Lamb, top, sh- top chef judge, former editor of Guilt Taste, and the editor of Cornbread Nation 7, an anthology about Southern food writing. This is Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five years old. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like no one else. And we need, absolutely need, your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit your website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Hi, I'm Reggie Watts, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edward's Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edward's name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. 
Thanks for tuning in to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio. Today we're talking to the one and only Francis Lamb about the book he edited called Cornbread Nation, a collection of the best writing about Southern food in recent years. Thanks for being here, Francis. Thank you. So I know this is a a tough one that I'm about to ask you um, because there are so many wonderful pieces in the book, but do you have a favorite or, or even a couple that really jump out at you that you still are like, whoa, you know, can't believe we found that one? <laughs> or one that, <laughs> ones that sort of hit a soft spot? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, a favorite. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I have a favorite for sure. I mean, I do think that there are certain ones I, that I, you know, I, the, nice, the weird thing about editing an anthology um, is that it can never really just be a collection of all your your personal favorite stories, right? Um, it's not like making a mixtape for like someone you're trying to like, <laughs> you know, right. someone you're trying to impress. Because <laughs> um, the anthology as a whole has to tell a story. And so what we tried to do was break it up into a few different collections, like collections within the anthology. And when we first started it, I thought, okay, well, because I am... I'm I'm not truly a southerner. Uh, I am only an honorary southerner, which you know is a, is a term I wear with pride. But but I'm not really a southerner, and obviously I came from somewhere else. And so I thought what the anthology would be about is collections of stories from people who saw the South as outsiders, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe they would never even set foot in the South, or maybe they would have moved into the South. Um, but then the more we were thinking about it and the more I started finding those stories and saying, like, oh, this is a great one, this is a great one, oh, this one's really good, the more I also started to think, you know, that can't be the whole story, right? Because even Southerners see themselves in a different way once they've left the South, right? Or maybe never even have to leave the South, but you start to see that the South is never one thing only, right? The South is not one cuisine, it's not one region, it's lots of different cultures, and it's lots of different cuisines, and lots of different, um, that may or may not have anything to do with each other. And so Southerners often see other Southerners in this sort of, with this sort of outside perspective also. And again, especially once they start leaving. Um, so, I, you know, if I think of a story like that, I think of Sarah Heppel's story about um, Queso. She's a Texas native, and she was, it's a beautiful story. It's not really about um, being from the South or being from Texas. It's really about her, a woman sort of learning, to, well, struggling with and learning to accept her appetites. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has this hilarious story about falling in love with queso, which traditionally, according to her, is made exclusively with Velve- Velveeta cheese and Rotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about her like, moving to New York and just dying for some queso, like needing a queso fix, <laughs> and how she gets that fix. And how she gets that fix in a in a different way when she moves back to Texas, you know. So, um, so I think of all these different stories that are they're just about people changing, um, or about the place changing them, or them changing the places where they are. Um, and you know, to go back to just the first two stories, you know, the first story is this really gorgeous, gorgeous story by Daniel Patterson, who 
it's like really unfair because he's one of the best chefs in the world. And then I read his writing. I'm like, okay, you can only be one of the best one thing in the world. You can't be one of the best chefs in the world and one of the best writers in the world. Um, (laughs) But he writes beautiful story about, um, it's a personal story about um, him and his family and his grandfather who moved to Miami and this Jewish deli um, where he used to eat. But then the very next story is by Susan Orlean about this Cuban community and the restaurant that they have um, that sort of holds them to their place. And they're both these stories about memory and where you are and how that's different from where you used to be or where you think you should be, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So, yeah, so I have lots and lots of stories. I mean, the story you mentioned earlier about uh, from Todd Kleiman about chasing the chef Peter Chang around Virginia, it's an incredible story. That's one of my personal favorites. I just love that sort of <laughs> that obsessive quality, but I think it's actually also a lot of them, and, and I think this is sort of a testament to your editing and, and also the, the general editor, John T. Edge, we should mention, um, sort of, you know, seeing that, seeing those threads through the the book. Um, and just for the, our listeners sort of interested in the breakup, the, the book is divided into five sections. So there's stories of people who somehow ended up in the South, right? Um, there's stories about foods that originated in the South or sort of credited to um, the South. Um, then there's sort of a theoretical section about food and, and how that informs culture or shapes culture. Um, and then there's stories from Southern expats, which <laughs> which itself is an interesting term to use. You know, expat traditionally is, right, you know, Americans living on the other side of the pond. But um, right. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you how you chose the pieces, sort of like the, the technical, did they just all come flooding in or did you seek them out? And um, how you ended up breaking up the, the book in this way, if, if it sort of, again, revealed itself as you got stories in, or you, you went in saying, hey, we really want um, these five themes or areas. Yeah, you know, I wish I had, like, a really sort of, like, <laughs> like a really professional method mm-hmm. for how we did it, but it wasn't. It was, a lot of it was, like, let's just read lots of stuff. And myself and John T. and this woman, Sarah Camp Arnold, who works at Southern Foodways Alliance, who was amazing. Um, you know, we would just kick around stories to each other and be like, this one's amazing, you should check it out. This one's amazing, you should check it out. And then it was some combination of stories that we found that, like, oh, we just kind of love this one. And then seeing what the threads were that tied them together. Um, but then it was a lot of the other way around. Like I said, it was as we were having that conversation, there was also this sense of, like, well, maybe we need to have a whole section on this kind of story or this kind of perspective because it seems like that keeps coming up and it makes sense for us to, you know, broaden the purview of the whole anthology. And then, and then there were also um, more specific themes that we kind of felt like, you know, this, we really need to include this. And so, for instance, I think of this little, um, like a grouping in the chapter called The South Stepping Out that's about the Southern expats, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, about, this is something that um, not a whole ton of people necessarily think about if they're, if they're not familiar with the idea, but, I mean, the, the Greek migration fundamentally changed the United States, or fundamentally changed American culture. And I remember talking to John T. once, and I asked him, you know, is Chicago the northernmost southern city? I mean, like this, and this is like years after my stupid joke about Michigan, right? But like, but you know, the south side of Chicago, and he's like, well, the south side of Chicago, you could probably make a case, is 
a southern city, right? And it's largely populated by black people who came from the South and, you know, brought their culture and their traditions with them and obviously have changed Chicago and also now being there for over, you know, for, for many, 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 many decades. Uh, it's also changed that community and that culture. Um, and so there's this whole sort of part of that chapter where we talk about soul food, which is in a lot of ways how, you know, a lot of people's first um, introduction to something that could be called Southern food, but how soul food is not just quote-unquote Southern food, but very specifically it is black Southern food that is in many places just as Northern as is, as is Southern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have something from Langston Hughes there, and we have something from Jessica Harris, who's a really wonderful writer and scholar, and we have something from Patricia Smith, who's an amazing poet, just like a, a, like a, a gorgeous poet, um, and a few more pieces, and we wanted to make sure that 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 was sort of its own little narrative thread that, you know, existed within this larger, within this larger chapter. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. We love, we love Jessica. She has a show on, on heritage. Yeah, and of she's course. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so there's actually a big school of thought that Southern cuisine and I mean, we could say soul food, but that's, you know, a whole other show to, to talk about soul food and um, what that means. But just the idea of Southern cuisine um, and even more specifically, maybe barbecue and different, um, you know, variations of barbecue, depending on what state you're from, is one, if not the only true American cuisine. And I'm wondering if you you agree with that and, and if that sort of lends to our, our fascination with it. And in some cases, even, you know, we've exoticized it. Like we mm-hmm. have Southern, all varieties of Southern restaurants popping up in New York. You know, I've seen them across the country. Um, and it's almost like its own, <laughs> its own brand, if you will. Um, so I'm wondering sure. if you could sort of comment on, um, if if that's our American cuisine and sort of how you've experienced people's, you know, almost fetishizing of it in some cases. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think that's totally true. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I started realizing, oh, you can't like swing a dead cat in New York City without hitting a Southern restaurant. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they are everywhere, and I think it's I think it's a really comp complex and in a lot of ways complicated issue and I know we only have a few minutes left so I, I, I don't know how, how, how deep we can get into it I mean this is something we can talk about for the rest of our lives mm-hmm. but something I talk about I talk about with John T on, on, with some regularity and I, you know we were talking once and I'm like I think southern food has become the national regional cuisine if that makes any sense and he's like no I think that makes total sense I mean I think that he's like I think that's true and I think we like the idea that it's a regional cuisine um, because it makes it seem more real. And I think that, you know, so many things in the way that we as a, as a, as a, as a national culture have, have really begun to cher- you know, think about food. We, we think about tradition. We think about, you know, handcraft. We think about, you know, this kind of like digging in the dirt, literal digging in the dirt you know, quote-unquote authenticity. And I think it's sort of the fact that the South is largely still perceived, rightly or wrongly, as being agrarian, being rural, being conservative in the sense of being tradition-oriented, tradition-minded, feeds into that idea, right? And so it's like we kind of, like, we have this thing that we're really in love with, 
And then we're like, oh, wait, but that's how they do it over there already. Cool. We should get really into that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, but then it's funny because you think about, okay, well, and, 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 you know, like I said, that's a really complicated issue. Um, but then we, if we talk about, well, a barbecue is the only true, truly American cuisine or, or Southern food is the tr- only truly American cuisine. I would say, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I get why we say that. But you also kind of have to ask, well, what does that mean, right? Because Southern cuisine, so much of Southern cooking, frankly, is African, mm-hmm. right? Right. And like those traditions and, and those ingredients, a lot of the peas, a lot of the rice, you know, that came from Africa in the pockets of people who we were bringing here to be, you know, slaves. So, yeah. It's American. It exists here, and its history is here. But it came from somewhere else, um, on some level. You know, barbecue. We think of you know in the way that like we often talk about jazz as being like this indigenous native art form mm-hmm. and this indigenous native music. And barbecue is you know a lot of people want to make that claim of barbecue. It's an indigenous American food. Yeah, I mean I'm not going to argue against it, but I would argue for opening up the idea of what American means. Mm-hmm. Because you know the word barbecue comes on some level, as I understand it, from like I think an Arawak word or or, or a word in another um, you know Native American language. But there's also the tradition of barbacoa, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a Spanish word, um, and and you know it goes into these larger. You know, but you look at Texas barbecue, which is really heavily heavily influenced by German food and German cuisine. And you, know, you think of all of these different traditional influences on barbecue, and a lot of them come from places outside the United States. Um, and so I just kind of think that's true of Southern food, both in past and present, and will continue to be only more so in the future, you know, as we have more immigrants in the South, as we have, you know, Peter Chang, the story of uh, Ty Kleiman's perfect chef. Mm-hmm. Is he a Southern chef? I mean, well, he's got six restaurants in Virginia. <laughs> and yeah, he's, he's amazing because he cooks, quote unquote, authentic Chinese food. But I mean, he lives in Virginia and he works in Virginia and he could live anywhere else in the world if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's that mean? Right. God, it's such a such a rich. We could go so deep. I wish we could have you on for for three hours or on every show. But um, <laughs> we're actually out of time. So um, I just want to thank you so much for for being on today, Francis. And uh, again, Francis Lamb, editor of Cornbread Nation Seven, an anthology of the best Southern food writing, out now. So definitely check it out and let us know what you think. Um, I'm your host, Talia Ralph. This has been another awesome episode of Eat Your Words, live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, New York. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Like this